What's with this band anyway? I don't get it, can you please explain? Wait, like bands playing? Like that catchy song said, this is Bandsplain, and I'm your host, Yasi Salik. This is a show where I invite music experts on to explain cult bands and their fandoms to me, for better or for worse. Today we're going to talk about fish. Maybe you, like me, thought you knew what fish sounded like, but don't actually know what fish sounds like. Here's what fish sounds like. Today we're joined by fish expert, Rob Mitchum. Welcome to the show, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about fish, which is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit first about yourself and your background? Sure. So uh, I'm a science writer uh, and I'm a music writer. I wrote for many years for Pitchfork, mostly about indie rock. Uh, Pitchfork was a site where fish was pretty much a forbidden topic. So I kept this part of my personality secret for (laughs) about a decade. Uh, But yeah, I've written uh, album reviews and concert reviews for a number of different publications, uh, including Uncut and Relics and some other places. Amazing. so, but you kept your fish love secret from all your coworkers, from many, even your science coworkers. <laughs> yeah, for basically the entirety of the two thousands, I wouldn't talk too much. Oh, it's just it was just like embarrassing all around to like any human being, even someone that didn't care about music. You were like, we can't talk about this. Exactly, very much, uh, you know, on topic with the premise <laughs> of this show, right? I didn't even. Uh, I, I told my wife about it, but nobody else, uh, because it was uh, considered to be so uncool that it would ruin my credibility at Pitchfork if I talked too much about fish. Well, clearly, like everything uncool has become cool again. So I don't know if that's just like a cyclical thing or we've run out of cool things. So now we've <laughs> gone back to mine the uncool things. But why don't you start out? Again, because I know nothing here. Can you tell me about fish? Like, who are they? Give me some, like, biographical info. Sure. So, uh, fish formed in Vermont in 1983. And for all but the first couple years, they've been the same four people. Uh, Guitarist, Trey Anastasio. Bassist, Mike Gordon. Keyboardist, Paige McConnell. And drummer, John Fishman, which is where they got the eye-rolling name. Since they formed, uh, they started out playing in dorm room cafeterias but they grew to selling out arenas by 1994 and then grew even bigger, selling out these massive festivals that drew nearly 100,000 fans to remote locations in Maine and Florida. Uh, And these festivals, by the way, even though they sort of set the format for the modern rock festival, uh, Fish was the only band performing at these events. So they are probably one of the biggest bands in the country that most people have never even heard of. Uh, And I'm here to set the record straight on that today. (laughs) So you're saying Fish walked so that Coachella could run? Basically, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the whole idea for Bonnaroo came from the fish festivals in the 90s. The guys who started Bonnaroo were inspired by these late 90s fish festivals. So everything that has come in the wake 
of Coachella and Bonnaroo, you can trace back to to Fish. So I can send my strongly worded letters to Fish about how unbearable music festivals are and how like someone hoodwinked me into thinking that I want to pay $180 to go stand in mud. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you like fish and you go to a fish festival, they're pretty great. Okay. All right, Rob. <laughs> well, you know exactly what you're getting. Listen, we're on our way. Okay. We, we're starting out. I'm open-minded. Um, at, you know, before this started, we did talk a little bit about um, David Matthews and his band and how I am a fan there, which, you know, tangentially, I think, related to Fish in some ways. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, they were uh, definitely colleagues and peers in this sort of like early to mid 90s jam band scene. And they played together a handful of times. Oh, my God. Colleagues is the best thing because I literally just pictured them all like sitting in like office cubicles with their like 17 people piece like brass and horn sections. So good. Um, okay. Well, fish, you know, in my mind, by the way, fish started in like the sixties. I literally have such little understanding and yes, thank you for noticing. I did do zero research. <laughs> um, why don't you take me like, I, I usually I would ask like, okay, what's a song that everybody might know or most people might know? But I don't, I know for a fact there's no song I know, but like what would be the song to start with, with Fish right. for the lay people? So Fish, over the course of the 90s, made several runs at trying to be a commercial band and trying to have a hit single in part because they saw the Dave Matthews band doing it and they saw Blues Traveler doing it. So they were like, hey, we want to do a hit single too. Probably the closest they came was Almost Accidental. Uh, and that was a track from their live album, which is called A Live One. Another bad pun. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> but the first track is called Bouncing Around the Room, which was it was a few years old by the time uh, it appeared on the live album. But I think it was the track that probably got the most radio play as people were starting to say, hey, who is this band fish that I've never heard of, but that can sell out Madison Square Garden. So you, you, you heard this song around the radio a lot. And I know a lot of fish fans were afraid that it was going to become the big hit single and bring a bunch of new people who didn't understand fish to the scene. So when you say radio, are you, what kind of radio are we talking? Are we talking terrestrial mainstream radio or are we talking like college pirate radio? Right. Well, so this is the mid '90s when it's sort of like just past the grunge era, when right. alternative rock started to get a little crunchier, and there was this sort of like '90s hippie movement. So you had Blues Traveler. Shout out Hootie and the Blowfish, another Yossi favorite. Hootie, probably the leaders of that whole scene. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you had like uh you know Ten Thousand Maniacs sure. and Sarah McLaughlin and the Little Fair crew and so a lot of people that were doing alternative rock but that was a little bit hippie, a little bit classic rock, a little bit folk rock. Uh, and the Spin Doctors was another band from the same scene that had a huge hit. Huge so fan. Fish, Fish was friends with all these bands. Two huge hits, Rob. Spin Doctors had two huge hits, okay? Please do not try to overwrite Spin Doctors history. <laughs> okay, so those were their homies is what you're saying, all those, all those bands. Yep. A lot of these bands played together uh, in clubs before they got big. The Horde Festival started in the early 90s and Fish was on the Horde Festival uh, a, a couple times. Uh, so I think there was a Fish was feeling the pressure to have their big breakthrough hits and they tried it a couple different ways. And this was the closest they got, but still was not a successful crossover like those other bands. So this is Bouncing Around the Room from Fish's live album, A Live One. Bouncing around the room. 
So that was Bouncing Around the Room from A Live One, which is the Fish Live album they put out in 1995. I have a lot of questions. Yes, go ahead. Okay, number one, is that song about drugs? Probably not. Possibly. What else could it possibly be about? Fish were not a a big druggy band at that point. They were later, but not at that point. Mm, Okay, we need to get in. We're bouncing around the room. There was some crystal (laughs) talk, some... Something about pyramids, I believe. What else? It's just general psychedelic language. Okay, general psychedelic language, not at all connected to psychedelic uh, items, drugs, schedule B or C or whatever. Okay, okay, noted. Um, Number two, why a live version (laughs) to go to radio? Okay, did they have a normal version of this song on a recorded album? There was, yes. Uh, It was on an album called Lawn Boy, uh, which was very independently released and early on in their career and didn't sell a whole ton. Uh, A live one, uh, I believe, is still their best-selling album, which tells you a lot about Fish. Uh, Namely that they are a much better live band than they are a studio band, which is part of why they never did have this sort of radio commercial breakthrough. Um, But Fish songs are almost uniformly better live than they are in the studio. And if you want the purest fish experience, you're going to want to go to the live, uh, the, the live recordings, not the studio recordings. Okay, we're going to get into the pure fish experience uh, a little down the line. Tell me about the song in terms of like how well representative it is of fish's oeuvre right. as a whole. Yeah, I said oeuvre. Well, it, words. <laughs> well, uh, it's a lot shorter and tighter than your typical fish song. Mm-hmm. Fish songs tend to be very long, which made this format a little difficult because I wanted to pick all these long songs, but I didn't want to, to lose everybody's interest sure. with that, you know, five 20-minute tracks. That's um, <laughs> Bouncing Around the Room is one of their shortest songs, but one, one way that it really does reflect what's special about fish is that, uh, as you could probably tell from listening to it, uh, all four members sing as part of the song, and it's what it, the... the composition of the song is such that all four members are contributing small parts to a greater whole, right? It almost sort of turns into like a row, row, row your boat round at the end. But even musically, all the parts that everybody is playing sort of interconnect and uh, form like a a, a cohesive whole in a really interesting way, which is sort of Fish's philosophy uh, for everything, uh, particularly in how they approach improvisation, which is not about taking solos, so much as it is about having this four-way ongoing conversation. Which we might call jamming. We can call it jamming. <laughs> jamming, you know, it's one of these terms that is, you know, in some sense diminutive, but <laughs> there's there's not a better word for it. Improvisation, I guess, is the like sure. hoity-toity uh, intellectual term for it, but they call it jamming. We can call it jamming. I call it jamming. Let's call it jamming. Okay. I will say I was um, inspired in the sense that... Um, you know, I also can't sing very well and I've always, you know, let it stop me, but I've been noticing more and more, it doesn't stop other people, namely men. (laughs) So why should it stop me? I would say that vocals are the thing that they are least good at and (laughs) they've gotten somewhat better in some dimensions over the years. But uh, yeah, I mean, the best parts of fish are when they're not singing. Let's put it that way. Let's continue on our um, fish journey. Or fish in the fish river, the pond of fish, the the flowing waters of fish. 
Yeah, it's hard to avoid aquatic metaphors when you're talking <laughs> about fish. I'm really sorry, okay? I'm only human. All right, Rob, you know, you were not born into this world knowing and loving fish, I assume. So t- tell me how you discovered this glorious band. Are you from the East Coast? No, I'm from the Midwest. I've always lived in the Midwest. Um, yeah, fish, fish's main center of fandom is definitely New England, the Northeast, you know, Vermont and surrounding cities. Uh, but I was in the Midwest in the mid-90s in high school. I had gotten really into trading bootlegs in the early days of the internet, mostly like grunge bands, alternative rock bands. Uh, and Like what kind? What bands? Like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and... Sure. Smashing Pumpkins, those types of bands. The big three. Exactly. And there were, you know, tapes to be found online and you would trade them through the mail in the old fashioned days in padded (laughs) envelopes. But, you know, it wasn't like you could hear every show and the shows that you could get were usually somebody like recording with a, you know, tape recorder in their pockets. And so they were very poor quality. Uh, soon enough, I discovered that there were these bands, you know, like the Grateful Dead or like Fish, that taping was like part of the culture. Uh, there were taper sections at these concerts. People taped every show that these bands played. And there were these huge communities online that would swap tapes and you could get hundreds, even thousands of shows this way. Uh, so this really appealed to me first as just like a, a, a collection opportunity. Like I was really into the process of sending away tapes and getting tapes back. But I, from there, I really like started falling in love with fish. Uh, and it, was, it turned out to be a really good time to get into fish because this is like late 95, early 96, which is right after Jerry Garcia died. So the Grateful Dead had been... There was a uh, hole in the market is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. And you had all these other jam bands that had had big radio success, but Fish was the one that really took the mantle of the Grateful Dead after they went off the road. They were the one that played all the, you know, the big arenas in the Northeast. They played all the big amphitheater sheds uh, throughout the country. People went on tour and followed Fish around just the same way they did the Grateful Dead. So even though Fish doesn't really sound like the Grateful Dead, which is a misnomer that I think a lot of people have, they were the ones that carried this culture forward. Uh, So I got really into collecting their tapes and started going to their shows. And like we said at the start, I I had a little period where I, you know, got out of fish or kept my fish obsession secret, Mm -hmm. uh, but have gotten back into them. So to date, I've seen 72 shows, 72 fish shows. Which which, is not a lot, right? For like within like people would look down on you. Yeah. Compared to a lot of (laughs) fish fans, especially ones that have been seeing them since the mid nineties, like me, uh, you know, anything under than a hundred, you're still in sort of beginner territory. So the fact that I'm still in double digits is a, is a great shame. Step it up, Rob. Okay. Let me (laughs) ask you, do you feel like fish would not have been able to become this like preeminent uh, follow around the country jam band, you know, spiritual uh, takers of the mantle, as you said, of Grateful Dead without the internet? Uh, no, I, I think that's a great point. They were one of the first bands to really latch onto the internet as a way to build their community. There's a site called Fishnet, which still exists today, fish.net, which was actually started by fans of the band, but the band would use it to disseminate information to their fans. So here's the upcoming tour dates, or here's an album that's coming out, or we're going to do a vote for this special concert and we'll run it through this uh, website. Uh, There was also news groups at the time. There was one called Rec Music Fish, which was kind of like an early message board. Mm -hmm. And that's where we would trade tapes. Like I discovered that logging on through America Online uh, and finding that news group. 
group and trading tapes with other fans and then meeting other fans and, you know, building it out that way. So Fish, you know, because they never had this mainstream success, built their following entirely through word of mouth. And they just happened to come up right at the perfect time where word of mouth became a thing that could be enhanced by the Internet. So the Dead also were a a big word of mouth band, but they had to do it through newsletters and actual people talking to each other. Whereas Fish was uh, always kind of on the leading edge of how bands use the internet to build their community. So they were one of the first bands to live stream shows. They were one of the first bands to sell audio of their shows uh, right after it was played. So there's a whole long list of things that, uh, you know, ways that the internet is totally interconnected with, with Fish. Are Fish communists? (laughs) <laughs> uh, their drummer is a huge Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, he has a so their drummer wears a dress. This is one of the things that people find strange and off-putting all about fish all the time. Uh, and Even now, in in this year of our Lord Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue in a dress, people and, find it off-putting. Well, and well, he is like a fifty-five-year-old man now, or something like that. So, That's ages. Yes, all well, men true. should be yeah. able to wear dresses, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. He finds it very freeing while he's playing drums, which is a very practical reason to wear a dress. So. I would assume, yeah, you're sitting, it's like sweaty and gross. Sure. You want to have a little breeze. So typically, he wears a donut pattern dress. You've probably seen these sort of donut pattern clothing items that people wear to sort of secretly announce that they are fish fans to others. I almost wore my bandana. Rob, this might shock you, but I have not. Oh, is that what's happening here? No, I didn't know the secret coding language of fish fans is donut print. (laughs) Donut prints, clothing items. Now you'll see it. You'll see it out there and you'll thank me. Uh, But so he typically wears a donut print dress, but he has a Bernie Sanders dress. Uh, The rest of the band is very like... They don't like to talk about politics. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. Okay. Well, Rob, tell me, why don't you talk about maybe a song that you discovered um, in these early forums, listservs or whatever that like, you know, (laughs) I still are wrapping my mind around how you went from Nirvana to like, hell yeah, fucking this band rules about a fish song. So I want to hear what a, a sample of a song that you heard that you were like, yes. So I picked what I think is one of the best fish songs, which is not always the same thing as like the best fish songs to see. And we'll get into that later. But this is a song called Free, which is from an album called Billy Breathes. Billy Breathes came out in 1996. So this is right around the time that I started getting into fish. It's one of their best studio albums. I'm pretty like uh, down on a lot of their studio work, but Billy Breathes is a really interesting one. It's got kind of like a Beatles White Album feel to it. It's got some sort of abstract studio experiment stuff instead of just trying to be like, we're a live band playing in a studio. Uh, But Free has a really great guitar riff. It has a really catchy uh, melody for a Fish song. It doesn't get into uh, really weird stuff or really complicated sort of proggy stuff like a lot of their material. And I remember this one was released to radio as well. And I'm like, maybe this is going to be the song that uh, helps them uh, earn a bigger audience. And that didn't really happen, but it still is a very good song and a song that I think would attract people to listening to more of the band. So this is Free from Billy Breathes. So that was free from their 1996 album, Billy Breeze. And Yassi, I actually have a question for you. Sure. Does fish sound like you expected fish to sound like? 
No. Okay. That's thank you so much for asking this question because I was just thinking while I was listening to this song that controversial opinion. They sound like red hot chili peppers light a bit here. <laughs> I think it's the slap into bass. Do you that know what is I'm the saying? slap into slap into bass. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm coming around a little. Like this is not what I thought they were going to sound like. Also, this doesn't sound like the other song, so I'm a little confused. It's the singing voice so far that's throwing me off because he does sound like a man who might ghost me on Raya, the dating app. So that's where I'm right now having a sticking point. But no, they don't sound like what I thought they were going to sound like. Yeah. And I think the, I, I said this before, but I think this is an important point that I would like to make if, if you remember nothing else from listening to this episode. All I'm going to uh, remember is donut dress. <laughs> the donut dress. Yeah. But yes, make whatever point you'd like. <laughs> But uh, Fish does not sound like the Grateful Dead. Uh, the Grateful Dead were an influence on Fish, but it was mostly in terms of like the format of what they do, which is go out and play 100 shows a year and play two set, very long shows that feature a lot of improvisation. But they're not drawing from the same influences at all. And that makes sense because Fish, the guys in Fish are like 20, 25 years younger than the guys in the Grateful Dead. So where the Grateful Dead were drawing from a lot of like early 20th century influences like jazz and folk and country. Fish is more like uh, the dead if instead they were drawing from classic rock or from funk music or from post-punk. Yeah, like what kind of what kind of artists were Fish inspired by? Like name names. Yeah, so Fish, very early on, they were huge prog nerds. I think their number one influence is probably Frank Zappa. Okay. Uh, and they also like Genesis and Yes and bands of that sort. But they were also guys that were growing up in the, or they were in college age in the early 80s. So they were interested in stuff like XTC or mm-hmm. the Talking Heads or totally. like post Velvet Underground Lou Reed. Uh, and they also, they grew up on Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and The Who and all these, you know, the big 70s classic rock bands. So instead of drawing from these more older traditional forms of music and turning it into something new, they're combining a lot of the sort of boomer Generation X touchstones uh, into their sort of own fusion uh, music and then expanding those artists through improvisation. Okay, that's actually really interesting to know because I won't lie to you, I did in my mind think that they sounded like the Grateful Dead. And if we're being honest, I don't have a strong working understanding of what the Grateful Dead sounds like either. Um, So just a big fuzzy space in my brain where these bands live. Um, But now it is replaced with Donut Dress. So, (laughs) you know, uh, Rob, what I'd love to know is... You talked a couple times earlier about how you've had to hide or in the past, I think clearly now you do not hide this since um, we got you on since me asking Twitter, who is the preeminent uh, fish journalist of our time? And you were recommended like 10 times. So you're clearly not secretive about it anymore, but you did hide your love of this band. And what do you, why did you feel like you had to do this for so long? Like, and also like, and in, in like a bigger, more meta question is like, why do you think they were perceived as so uncool? Right. So the thing with Fish is that they have a sense of humor, which is in a lot of ways the worst thing you can have if you want to be perceived as a cool band, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like cool bands are ironic and, you know, detached and dark. Uh, Fish are none of these things. They are really goofy and silly sometimes, and that scares people off 
who are sort of invested in this image of music as their, you know, key to coolness. So some of the strange, silly things that Fish do, for instance, is they have a rock opera that was uh, Trey, the guitarist's uh, senior thesis in college. And it is about like a race of lizard people and an evil tyrant and a magical book. I mean, it is like, you know, real Dungeons and Dragons stuff that right away, you're, you're clearing out most of your audience just once you start singing about that. Uh, they have a secret language that they use live. They don't use it as much anymore, but they did this a lot in the 90s where they'll play a little musical riff and that instructs people in the audience to take particular actions. Like they'll play a little snippet of the Simpsons theme and everybody's supposed to yell dough like Homer Simpson or they'll play three little notes and everybody's supposed to like drop down to the floor of the venue. Uh, so they wow. are, we're, we're wow. talking about a cult band here and cult is the right word probably because there are all these little, uh, you know, pieces of knowledge that only people that are super into the band get, right? And so it's very intimidating the outsiders who don't understand, you know, what what is this band doing? It takes a lot of research and uh, experience with fish to understand all of the things that they might be doing. But they'll, so they jump around on trampolines for some of their songs. They have like choreographed dance routines they always do for one particular <laughs> song where the guitarist and bass player jump onto trampolines. Okay. Uh, they do set lists where they spell out secret messages with the first word of every song in the set list. Uh, so as you're writing down the set list, you are given a secret message from the band. If you look like acrostic style vertically, uh, they do these big New Year's Eve gags where they bring in professional choreographers and dancers. They'll have moving stages sometimes. And most famously, I guess, they fly around in a flying hot dog. It's a giant hot dog that they can all sit in like seats and bring portable instruments and they all fly around the venue. They've done this three times now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? A flying hot dog. Are we talking about like an aviation device, like an aircraft? <laughs> it does not actually fly on its own. It's suspended from wires, but they rigged it up so that it could fly around. The Boston Garden was the first place they used it in 1994. Flying, flying hot dog. Okay. Flying hot dog. Right. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking this is like the corniest shit they've ever heard in their life. But it's actually like part of what I love about fish because it has kept them so vital and so unpredictable over now 37 years of their careers. And they, they keep doing weird pranks now. A lot of these things started in the 80s and 90s when they were you know, young and silly and just trying to make a name for themselves on the road. Uh, but they have done things in the last couple of years that have been really interesting along these lines. Like in 2017, they did what was called the Baker's Dozen concert, uh, concert run at Madison Square Garden. They played 13 consecutive shows uh, sold out every one of them. And over those 13 shows, they didn't repeat a single song once. So they played a totally different set list the entire, for the entire 13 show run. So that was really cool. And then there was a Halloween show in 2018. Now Fish has this Halloween tradition where they cover another band's album. So they've used that to cover the Beatles' White Album. They covered the Who's Quadrophenia. They covered the Talking Heads' Remain in Light. They've covered a whole bunch of other bands' albums. Uh, but for 2018, they made up a fake band called Kazvat Voxed. Mm -hmm. It's a Scandinavian <laughs> prog rock band. Uh, and they covered this band on Halloween. Uh, they made up a fake biography. Uh, all the, they, but they, they basically, they wrote an entire new album of songs in the guise of this other band and then premiered it for their audience by pretending that it was a cover. 
Uh, so it's a really interesting set. Uh, I have a song from it here to play. It sounds like very, very strange music, uh, but it was the kind of like fun, unexpected thing that you get from Fish that, you know, no other band would do something like that. And certainly they wouldn't do that four decades into their career. So this song is called Turtle in the Clouds. And of course it is. This is, you know, one of the things they did. So it, they they made up this Scandinavian prog rock band. And then all of the lyrics are kind of like if you put something in Google Translate and then sent it back to English, then you get that weird sort of secondhand uh, game of telephone translation. So all the lyrics in this song are very much in that vein, like intentionally mistranslated lyrics. Uh, and it's from, you can find it on Spotify as an album called Kesvat Voxed colon I Rock Live. It's actually just the Halloween set from 2018 where they played this fake album. Okay, let's hear it. All right, that was Turtle in the Clouds from their Kazvad Voxed Iraq sort of album <laughs> that they did live. That was the one I was least, uh, I was most hesitant to play for you because of how strange it is. But uh, you have to appreciate it in the context of the joke that they were playing. But it's also like a sign that, you know, even as recently as two years ago, they were still doing this weird stuff and still introducing new songs into their catalog, which is, I think, rare for a band that has been around for as long as they have. They have not sort of rested on their laurels and become an oldies act by any means. I have to say I did disassociate (laughs) (laughs) somewhere in there, but I can hear the Talking Heads uh, influence. Um, Yes, I understand what you're saying and I can see why their fan base is so devoted considering that, like you said, they're getting back what they put in from the band. I want to talk about this fan base. Um, What does it look like? Like, take me to like a fish show what is the makeup of the crowd? What's the like general age range? What's the what's the vibe? So the fish fan base is very white and very male. Uh, and mm, you don't you don't yeah. say <laughs> and to the, you you're telling me that they're very white and male. I don't believe it. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I have to, it's <laughs> there's no getting around it. Uh, and it's also <laughs> I think a lot of people around my age, uh, people in their late 30s, early 40s who got into the band in the 90s and have stayed with the band. I haven't really seen it catching on with a huge number of younger people. Certainly not in the way that The Dead did in the 90s. Right. Or the even dead, now. <laughs> right. The Dead keep coming back. And they had, you know, obviously they started in the 60s and they had these sort of like uh, bursts of new fans constantly coming in, which I don't think has happened so much with Fish. And I think, you know a lot of the things we've talked about are the reason why they're just kind of a tough band to get into. But uh, yeah, the fan base is aging, uh, I would say, (laughs) Uh, but not, you know, it's not super old. It's like a lot of, it's a lot of dads out on their uh, vacation from the kids. Can I tell you what I picture? And this might just be a more of like a late nineties vision, but I just picture a lot of white guys in Abercrombie and Fitch clothing. Like yeah. in New Jersey. I think so. On acid. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely more of a preppy vibe from the fish crowd than a hippie vibe, I think. Right. And honestly, in the late 90s, it kind of crossed over in weird ways with like the rave scene. Like, oh, sure. I think, 
due to shared uh, drug interests, I would say, is that you got a lot of crossover, especially at these fish festivals, which were not that far off from big electronic music festivals that you might see today. That's a wonderful place for us to get into. When did the drugs come in? (laughs) Because these people are on drugs. The people that listen to them are on drugs. I will not accept any other explanation. So tell me, when did they become known for like, that's the place you go and do a bunch of drugs? I think uh, this is again the late 90s. And I think it's a little bit because of the fact that the Grateful Dead went off the road. And of course, there was a huge drug scene that followed the Grateful Dead. Um, Particularly in the 90s, there were a lot of people who just went to those shows to party and do drugs in the parking lot. and They didn't really care about the music. Some of that scene just like jumped onto the fish bandwagon as soon as the Grateful Dead were gone. Uh, The band themselves, they'll talk very openly about this, started getting more into drugs in the late 90s. Uh, Trey Anastasio uh, got so deep into drugs that he was actually arrested uh, in the 2000s and went to drug court and did a house arrest rehab program. Now he is very outspoken about his sobriety and about uh, treatment center. What was he arrested for? He, I believe, had... um, uh, opiates on him, prescription okay, so opiates that he did not have a prescription for. That's uh, not that's not the fish drug vibe. That's that's a, that's a whole different vibe. Well, that's what he was caught with, but there were right. a lot of other things, you sure. know, at other moments in time. I'm sure. Uh, so, I mean, things the the music definitely changed as things got druggier. And then, to be honest, those late '90s years are my favorite years of fish. Uh, I'm always, you know, very hesitant to ascribe any of that to, uh, you know, what drugs the band was on, particularly because, like, that's that's kind of dark. But uh, I think they did sort of loosen up as a band over the late '90s and produced some of their most interesting music uh, at what seems like the time that they were partying the hardest, uh, so to speak. I, I bristle at the idea that you have to be on drugs to appreciate fish, though. I think there's a lot to like about fish, uh, and particularly because they are... Um, the Grateful Dead are a much druggier band to me. Like they're, Wow, bold they're, statement. They're, their concerts uh, <laughs> almost feel tailored to the drug experience in some ways, whereas fish is a much... Uh, like busier band, a much more aggressive band in a lot of ways. And I think that it's not necessarily like music to score an acid trip by. I mean, I know a lot of people who have done acid at fish shows and they said it was great, but it they don't go as hand in hand as I think it would with a, a lot of other music. So we found some people that were willing to go on record to talk about fish and we cut them into a little montage for you to listen to. Check it out. Fish is pretty much the perfect band to nerd out over. I like to make the analogy between fish and sports. People are deeply, deeply in love with sports, and they're also deeply in love with fish. You can go on a website and see exactly how many times they've played each of their songs, when they first debuted, how they've changed over the years. It's insane. It is like stats for sports, but for music. My first show was in a very small gymnasium in upstate New York, and I was immediately hooked. I first learned about 
about fish. When I was a camper at a Jewish summer camp, my counselors put on the song Contact. I listened and immediately was captured. I fell in love with so many different things. The music, the fun that the band would have on stage, the fact that each show was just different and each song sounded different every night. Because they're improvising, something happens on stage between these four music nerds that couldn't happen and wouldn't happen any other time. And also the fans. It was just sort of an overwhelming sense of being part of something, part of something that was different. I mean, what other band is going to give you donuts when you show up to Madison Square Garden? It's a widespread phenomenon for Jews to have learned about and to connect to fish through Jewish summer camp. There's a massive Jewish fan base that finds deep meaning and spirituality through the music and through the concert experience. All of the things they've brought me, the love, the support, the camaraderie, the fun, the joy, you know, just being able to set my soul free. You know, this is why I love the band Fish. If you like it, you like it. And if you don't like it, you got to respect it. They've been doing it for a long time and they do it with a lot of heart. Yeah, I mean, I think you you really hear the dichotomy there that you can enjoy fish in this sort of spiritual sense, but also in the very analytical sense where you're like swapping statistics about what shows you went to or how long it's been since they last played the song or, you know, arguing about what the best show is or whether last night was better than the night before and all these things. Uh, and I think, you know, it's not an either or proposition either. Like I definitely can fall into both camps. And a lot of my struggle when I'm at fish shows is trying to turn off the analytical part of my mind so that I can access sort of the spiritual in the moment experience. Uh, but, you know, I enjoy doing both. And when I write about the band, I try and, you know, engage both elements of fandom. Uh, I'm not sure that there's too many other bands that really satisfy both those things, to be honest. I mean, if you're a big enough fan of any band, I'm, I'm sure you get in the weeds with set list statistics and things like that. But uh, the fact that they you know, sort of satisfy both like an emotional level and a, you know, scientific fandom level is something that's really special about a band like Fish. Yeah, just like Lana Del Rey. <laughs> that's a different conversation. I won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> if we just had to have another artist um, that I think we could compare. Just kidding. Um, tell me then, let's talk about like, what's the fan favorite? Like, you know, four out of five white dads say this is the best fish song. Right. So it's a tricky question and I'll explain why. And it's also why it's tricky to do this format for fish. It's because when you get really into fish, you don't necessarily like songs for the song themselves. Uh, you like songs for their potential for jamming. It's like, like when you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back at you. <laughs> sort of like that, yes. Okay. Uh, so the, the favorite fish songs are the ones uh, that are very open-ended and lead to different types of improvisation from version to version. So this is the thing, the, the important thing to know about fish. So no fish show is the same. They play a different set list every night. So when you go to a, a fish show, you don't want to expect, hey, I want to hear my favorite song because they have... 400 songs at this point, and they're going to play 20 to 30 songs. And so the odds of you catching your favorite song tend to be pretty low. Let me jump uh, but, in really quickly yeah. because I'm just at a loss. How did they write so many songs? <laughs> <laughs> Why did they write so many songs? Like when did they have time to write so many songs? If they're playing 30 songs a night every day of the year, like explain. Yes. So... 
One clarification is that those 400 songs are not all Fish songs. They do a ton of covers. Uh, One way to get into Fish is that they are, in my opinion, uh, the world's greatest cover band because they cover music from all eras of music. They're very good musicians, so they do it very well. Uh, And uh, when you go to a show, typically they're going to play, I would say you know, five covers as part of those 20 to 30 songs. Sometimes it's even more. Have they done any rap music covers? (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Name names, Rob. We need some context. (laughs) Uh, You can go on your Spotify account and find an album called Hampton Comes Alive, uh, where they perform Getting Jiggy With It. Uh, If you really want to hear what that sounds like. I mean, obviously they were doing it very tongue in cheek, but they did do it. Uh, They have had Jay-Z perform with them. They've had Kid Rock perform with them. Very unfortunately. You you know what? Let's, uh, let's hear, (laughs) let's hear a snippet of Fish performing, getting jiggy with it. I do have to give you a context on this too. Okay. Real quick. Uh, So one thing that Fish does is their drummer, the one that wears a dress, don't print dress. Mm -hmm. Not every show. But occasionally he will come out and uh, switch with Trey. Trey plays drums as well. And Fishman will do a song where he is the lead vocalist. He is by far the worst singer in the band. So (laughs) they all realize this. And so they give him the most preposterous cover songs possible. The other thing that he does, I should say, is when it comes to solo in his songs, he plays a vacuum cleaner. He holds the tube of a vacuum cleaner to his mouth and lets it do suction, and he changes the shape of his mouth to do different notes. And you love this. Yes, people go wild. People lose their minds over fishermen playing the vacuum cleaner. You personally love love this. I love it as a old favorite in-joke that I sure. share with my friends Fish for uh, <laughs> th- 25 years now. Right, so that's getting jiggy with it, which is, you know, not a serious cover, I would say. It was sort of a, a one-off joke, but Fish covers a, a wide spectrum of music. They've covered uh, Richard Wagner. They've covered David Bowie. They've covered... Bluegrass legend Bill Monroe. They've covered Duke Ellington songs. Uh, They do these Halloween cover albums where they cover entire albums by people like the Beatles or the Talking Heads or Little Feet. Um, But in in general, the covers that Fish play are actually a really great way to first get into Fish uh, because they're playing songs that you know. Uh, They're not playing one of their originals, which can, as we've learned, can be a little bit intimidating or obtuse for a new person to get into. Uh, So one thing I would recommend for somebody trying to get into Fish uh, is to jump around some of these Halloween cover albums or find some uh, other covers they've played, songs that you like already, and hear how Fish, uh, you know, reproduces it, expands upon it, maybe jams on it a little bit in some cases, uh, and give that a try. So one song that I picked out, which I think Fish, is one of the best covers that Fish plays, uh, is the song Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. Uh, I think the song has like a, gotten a little bit obscure now, but it used to be sort of a classic rock radio staple, and it's got like one of these... Uh, famous classic rock riffs that everybody knows. I think because it was like a Beavis and Butthead riff or something like that. But uh, listen to Fish's version. Uh, I picked one from a live album called Vegas 96 and uh, see what you think. 
So that was Fish's cover of the song Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group, uh, a song that is sort of uh, equal parts hard rocking and silly, which is a good sort of mix for what Fish does best. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that maybe one of the main things that Fish fans like about Fish is just being part of the club. Like they like that they're part of a club, that there's all these secret you know, like you said, secret languages, secret commands, um, fun insider jokes. Like what about musically? Like what would you say after we get past donut dress and vacuum cleaner solo songs? What's like the main thing that you think fish fans like musically about the band? I mean, the thing that you really are chasing when you become a big fish fan are these improvisational moments at shows. So, uh, we talked about how the set list is different from show to show. Uh, there are a lot of songs that are jam vehicles, uh, that every version of that song is different every time they play it. So typically they'll play like the main part of the song and then it will either have an open ending where they can improvise or there will be a jam section in the middle and then they bring it back to a composed ending. So some songs are reliably going to be a very long version where the improvisational part is going to sound different every time you hear it. So there's a song called Tweezer. Tweezer is probably the consensus favorite uh, fish song because Tweezer itself is a song that is ridiculous and it's like just three minutes long and it's basically just like a chant almost and one single guitar riff but every time they play Tweezer it could be a 10 minute straightforward rock song or it could be a 20 minute psychedelic funk jam or it could be a 30 minute sort of cosmic spacey exploration so you never know what you're going to get you could get a mediocre version, which would be disappointing, but that's okay because the next one you see could be the greatest version of Tweezer ever. And so that's why people go to so many shows because they're always chasing that show where you're going to hear something that you've never heard before. The band's going to play something that they've never played before. They're making up music in the moments. And it's just like, it's like watching your favorite team win a championship when you see this happen because everybody in the room can just feel, you know, what an exciting, spontaneous moment of creativity this is. And people just lose their minds. Fish is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You never know what you're going to get. It's true. I mean, and that's why it's so addictive. It's like people say slot machines are addictive because of the unpredictability, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're going to win one out of 10 times, but you never know when that's going to happen. So you keep pulling that handle to see when you're going to win the jackpot. Uh, Fish shows are the same way. Sometimes I've been to fish shows that I've never been to a fish show that I just absolutely hated, but I've been to fish shows where I've been like, that was okay. Uh, but then I've been to fish shows that were, I mean, my favorite concert of all time was a fish concert in 1997. So uh, I saw them just a few months before the pandemic hit and uh, right before New Year's Eve 2019. It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It was at Madison Square Garden. They played a 30-minute tweezer and it was, you know, outstanding. Everybody was uh, thought that it was an instant classic and it was amazing to see it happen right before my eyes. So that's what keeps me coming back and what keeps me listening to their shows. Rob, you need to do acid at every show because then you would never walk away saying that was just okay. For example, at Coachella one year, I was on so much mushrooms that I cried during the Bon Iver set. Cried, <laughs> like full sobbed. Okay, Rob, for Tweezer, why don't we hear um, part of the like album version before it gets all wild and crazy kids on some live versions? Right. Yeah, so the 
song Tweezer came out on their album A Picture of Nectar, which is from 1991. So maybe we can play just a minute of that studio version. So you get the idea. Yes. It's basically that over and over again for four minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the song. Uh, but because it is such like a simple and you know, barely a song at all. That makes it one of their best platforms for launching off into whatever direction they want to go. So maybe I'll play you a snippet of one of the most famous tweezers uh, that you can find on Spotify, which is from one of their most famous tours, Fall 1997. Uh, This is from the November 17th, 1997 show, which they released as Live Fish Volume 11. So that's actually a pretty good example because you can hear how that second snippet that we heard, it had gone off into entirely new territory that wasn't really related back to the actual song Tweezer at all anymore. It was a different chord progression. It was a different musical style. Uh, and that's what you get over these like 20, 30 minute jams is that they just go in uh, totally new directions uh, from the starting point of the songs. So if this show is less about the songs in some regards, it's about like those spaces between the songs where they're basically writing new music as you watch on stage. Okay. 20 to 30 minute jams. I've got it. <laughs> um, oh, Rob, I feel like uh, we're we- reaching the end of our fish journey. Our, the donut dress of our discontent is coming to a close. Um, is there any, are there any parting words, any last remarks that you want to make um, about fish and luring people into the fish pond? Yeah, so one thing I would like to emphasize is that fish has been constantly evolving over the course of their career. So different eras of fish sound very different. And one nice thing about fish having all these live recordings out there, uh, on Spotify, you can find dozens of full fish live shows from over the years. Uh, If you go to fish fan sites, you can find audience recordings over a thousand shows you could listen to. Fish has their own service where they put out soundboard recordings of every show uh, within hours of the end of the concert. Um, but the, the thing I would tell people who are just getting into Fish is to jump around to different years of the band uh, because they sound very different based on what year you pick. So the way I usually describe it is that in the early 90s, they were still very proggy, sort of jazz prog geeks. But then in 94, 95-ish, they started becoming this big arena rock band and they started becoming a little bit more sort of loud and aggressive and hard rock focused. Uh, Then they went into this like 97 period that we heard earlier in Tweezer where they got deeply into funk music, uh, but sort of like a psychedelic version of funk that the fans called cow funk. And after that, they sort of unwound that sound into more spacey ambient territory uh, through the rest of the 90s into 99 and 2000. Uh, they're still playing today. They got back together in 2009 and have played, you know, 40, 50 shows every year ever since. Uh, when the pandemic is over, I'm sure they will go right back on the road. Uh, and every year brings something new with Fish. So. so once again, you're saying Fish is like a box of chocolates. And if you do not like the strawberry cream one just keep rooting around, you might find one of those delicious ones with like the pecans and the caramel. Right. Go for the hazelnut. Yeah. So so that's just sort of my uh, back of the envelope primer to fish in different eras. So uh, I picked one. I, 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 uh, 
Yasi, you were nice enough to give me uh, one long song uh, to include at the end of the playlist. Yes, I allowed I allowed for one <laughs> meandering long jam. Right. Take us And home. we put it at the end of the playlist so that if, if you have decided fish is not for you or you want to bail out early, uh, that's totally fine. I understand. Yeah, you have something to do, maybe an appointment <laughs> to get to. Uh, but if you have 14 minutes, which is a modest length for a fish jam, I must say, I have included the Choctaw's Torture from Live Fish Volume 8. Uh, this was a show in 1999, July 10th, 1999. Uh, so Choctaw's Torture is one of these like sort of straightforward rockers that are in the fish catalog. They play it a lot. It doesn't always jam. But sometimes it does. It goes into entirely uncharted territory. And when it does, that is very exciting for Fish and their fans. Uh, this particular version is one of the fan favorite versions of Choctaw's Torture. It's also one of the band's favorite versions. They typically don't talk about like what songs or shows they like best. But this is one that they've pulled from a couple times to demonstrate what they think is uh, sort of the best example of what they do on stage. So just a quick guide to this song. You'll hear the actual song, Choctaw's Torture, first. It's about the first four minutes of the song. Then there's about five minutes of jamming, which is very typical for Choctaw's Torture. It's sort of in the same zone that you would normally get from this song. And then there's another three minutes, starting about at the nine minute mark that it just goes off in a totally new direction and it becomes just truly transcendent for those three minutes. So if you listen to that and you are unmoved, you gave it a try. Thanks for, you know, giving it a whirl. Uh, fish is probably not for you, but if you think you might be fish curious, <laughs> I think this is a good jam to show you what they're capable of. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, if this doesn't move you, you're dead to me, but you're really <laughs> a nice guy. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for taking the time um, to educate me and our listeners about fish. And I don't promise that I will walk away with anything more than donut dress in my mind, but I have learned a lot today. All right. Thanks for joining us. Why don't we take it out with chalk dust torture? If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Bandsplain for more episodes, only on Spotify. Bandsplain is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Spoke Media. Special thanks to our fish fans who provided their voices for this episode. Shout out Jamie Friedman, Oren Kroll-Zeldin, and our very own engineer, Will Short. And a big, big thanks to Rob Mitchum for taking us into the world of fish. Follow him on Twitter at Rob Mitchum. This episode was produced and edited by Cody Hoffmuckle with help from Sharita Lynn Solis and Dylan Rupert. Our executive producers for Spoke Media are Aaliyah Tavakolian, Keith Reynolds, and Janielle Kastner. Our executive producers for Spotify are Liz Gately, Gina Dalvak, and me, Yossi Salak. Our catchy and gorgeous theme song was composed and performed by Bethany Cosentino and Jennifer Clavin and graciously recorded by Carlos De La Garza. Special thanks to Felipe Guillermino, Leah Edwards, Dana Meyerson, and the frame drawing of Dave Matthews I got on Depop, whose spirit guides this entire show. 